Isaiah chapter 53, but we'll be moving around a couple different passages this morning as we look at the perfect death of Christ. And I sent a three-part, second part of a three-part Easter series. On last week, we looked at the perfect life of Christ, and this week we will look at the perfect death of Christ. And next week, for Easter, we will look at the perfect redemption of Christ. But in uh, preparing uh, for this message and looking, beginning it, starting um, at looking at the death of Christ, we're going to go to perhaps um, what is the most clear prophecy of his death, of his sacrificial death in Isaiah 53, and actually this, um, the chapter and verse um, divisions weren't added until way later, um, in the 1500s, and uh, this chapter could rightly um, start actually in uh, chapter 52 in verse 13, the last few verses, so we're going to re- start there and read through the chapter, so from Isaiah 52 and verse 13 onward. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with, the wick, with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Heavenly Father, we read these words and we have the benefit of the fuller revelation of the New Testament, which shows the the significance of this prophecy. And yet these words were written 
roughly 700 years before Christ came and gave his life as a ransom for many. We can see a, a little bit more clear of the significance of that sacrifice through this prophecy that it pleased you to crush him. And Lord, we will continue throughout all eternity to grow in our understanding of what happened there at the cross 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray as we consider the death of Christ this morning that you would help us to grow in our understanding of the significance of that sacrifice, of the details surrounding it, of the prophecies that foretold it, of the foreshadowing throughout the whole Old Testament in types and figures. Help us to see. Help us to understand. And Lord, as I preach your glorious truths concerning the sacrifice of Christ, something which no man is worthy to preach, I pray that you would empower me, that you would enable me, that my words would be your words, and your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I was considering the death of Christ, and I was thinking, you know, one of the greatest motivators in life is death. It's one of the greatest motivators. And not just death itself, but everything that encompasses death. The, the, the pain of dying, the end of your earthly life, and all of your time in this world. That motivates you. It brings forth uh, thoughts of all the things you want to do before it comes, of regrets over the things you haven't done. And this reality, the cold hard truth of death, the fact that life has an end, this motivates people to do all sorts of things concerning their experiences in this world, concerning their relationships and their legacy. The, the gradual physical and mental decline that comes with the aging process and usually accelerates as you get closer to death is a continual reminder of the eventual end. And whether it's personally experienced or it's observed in others, uh, aging, decline, and the loss of friends and family members often motivates people to do things concerning their health their relationships, their finances, their time, and their experiences. Death is a great motivator. It's why we have concepts such as the bucket list, or leaving a legacy, or even biblically speaking, redeeming the time. Because it's going to end. And for many people, it's not just... The end of life, which motivates them to do certain things before the di they die, but it's the unknown of what comes after death, which motivates people to look for answers and to seek hope and comfort in all sorts of religions, ideologies, and spiritual practices, all of which promise some sort of happy ending to life or better circumstances in whatever comes after death. Death itself is the greatest motivator. It compels us to do all sorts of things. In fact, I would say that the most serious thing in life is death. Nothing is as sobering, nothing is as serious, and nothing is as compelling as death. And particularly what comes after death. This is why the author to the letter of Hebrews explains how Christ, in his death, took this motivating power of death from the devil through his death. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says about Christ and his death. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death 
were subject to slavery all their lives. Death is a motivator. And sometimes it's such a strong motivator that it enslaves us. It enslaves us to sin and idolatry. It enslaves people to false religions and false ideologies. There is a great power in death. There's a power to enslave, but there's also, through the death of Jesus Christ, a power to free. And this morning, as we look at the death of Christ, I want, to, I want you to see his good death, his glorious death, this perfect death, a death that no one else has died or, or will die. And in looking at his death, I, I, I broke this, this message up into uh, six headings or six aspects of the perfect death of Christ as we uh, look through this uh, topically, going through uh, many scriptures. I want you to see six aspects of the perfect death of Christ. And first and foremost, that it was a death that was foreshadowed. That, that though many of his disciples, many people in his day when he died did not see the full significance of his death, and, and sadly many people today and, and many believers don't see the full significance, and, and truthfully, we won't really see the full significance until we're in eternity, and we'll continue to grow in that. But his death was foreshadowed throughout the whole Old Testament. But most notably, first, it was foreshadowed in the sacrifice of Isaac. We, we, we could see a, a little bit foreshadowing before Isaac. We could see a little bit of it in, in Genesis uh, 3.15 in, in the, what is, is known as the first gospel, the proto-euangelion, in, in which uh, we hear uh, uh, God speaking to Adam and Eve and saying that... that uh, that he will crush, the seed of the woman will crush the, the, the head of Satan, but Satan will bruise his heel. We also see a little bit of foreshadowing in the fact that um, God uh, covered them with animal skins when their own um, attempts at covering their own shame failed in the fig leaves. He covered them with skins, which implies that there was a sacrifice but we really see this foreshadowing of the death of Christ and the sacrifice of Isaac. As God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to follow him to, and he promises to make him the father of many nations and through him uh, all nations will be blessed. And, and in his old age he, he promises him a son, an heir, and they, him and Sarah were childless and yet there is this promise of, a, of an heir. A promise which Abraham believed, but yet also at times faltered in his belief. But when that promise finally came, and Isaac was born, and Abraham saw the promise of God, it wasn't much later that, Ab that God calls to Abraham and he says in Genesis 22 and verse 2, he says, Take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. In Mount Moriah, where Isaac was almost sacrificed, is where... The Temple Mount is today. It's, it's, it's close by where Christ was sacrificed. It's where many bulls and goats would later be sacrificed to God. And so we see the, the, the death of Christ foreshadowed in the sacrifice of Isaac in, in that he was the son of promise, just as Christ would be. And, but we also see uh, it foreshadowed through the faith of Abraham. Through the faith of Abraham that the writer to the Hebrews, he would, uh, uh, he would elaborate on this. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, in which he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only son, to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. See the foreshadowing of Christ's death in the sacrifice of Isaac in his only son, the son of promise, and, and even through the faith of Abraham, that Abraham believed God, that he, he believed God would be able to raise him from the dead, also foreshadowing the death of Christ. The second, the death of Christ was a death that was foreshadowed in the Passover. In the Passover, in the lamb that was to be spotless and without blemish. In Exodus 12, as, as God gives Moses these instructions before the, the last plague would be uh, delivered to Egypt, would be uh, given as a judgment to Egypt that night. God gives Moses instructions concerning this celebration that would be celebrated every year since. Though after Christ, not in the same way. And they were to take a lamb, a lamb that was spotless and without blemish. And, and that lamb, as they uh, would sacrifice that lamb, they were to be certain that they would not break any of its bones just as none of Christ's bones were broken. And, and that, that the blood of the lamb was to cover the lintel and the doorposts, covering them from the angel of death, covering them from the plague, covering them from destruction, just as Christ's blood would cover us from the judgment of God. But third, Christ's death was foreshadowed in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That in order to gain access to God, in order to worship God rightly, blood must be spilt. There must be a sacrifice for sin because sin is serious and God is holy. And sin must be punished. Sin must be paid for. And so God gave Moses and the Israelites this System by which they were to follow in order to rightly approach him and rightly worship him, a system of sacrifices of, of various animals, a system with instructions which were to be followed carefully and soberly. And if they were not followed carefully and soberly, they would be punished as Nadab and Abihu were destroyed by fire. Yet this sacrifice, this, this sacrificial system, this continual, should have been daily. If, if the Israelites had followed it obediently, they would be sacrificing animals every day. There would be blood all over the place. There would be, uh, the priests would constantly be working. But these sacrifices would show and doing them over and over again would show their own inability to pay for sin. As a writer to Hebrews, he says this in Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. And the scroll of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. Those words of Jesus that, in a sense, were quoted from Psalm 40. This was a death that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. In the sacrifice of Isaac, in the Passover, in the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
The second, it was a death that was foretold. It was not just foreshadowed in types and symbology and events and circumstances in the sacrificial system, but it was explicitly foretold. It was explicitly foretold in the Psalms by the prophets through the law and by Christ himself. First, in the Psalms, Psalm 16 alludes to Christ's resurrection and his death, but probably most explicitly, we see Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which details a crucifixion, which had not been invented yet. This system of torture and execution, as David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry which Jesus would repeat, not only, uh, not only in his heart and soul and his anguish, genuinely saying these words, but pointing back to this psalm, pointing back to this prophecy. Say, saying about the mocking which he would endure at the cross and, and even in his beating saying that his, his bones are out of joint, his heart is like wax, it is melted within me, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have laid me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." clear prophecy, uh, clear details of what was happening to Christ on the cross. It's not just there. Also, Psalm 3420, speaking of his betrayal. Psalm 40 of his uh, sacrificial offering. Psalm 69, 109, and 118, also pointing to his crucifixion, to his sacrifice, to his betrayal, the events Surrounding his death. His death was foretold through the Psalms, through the Psalter. It's also foretold by the prophets, most notably in Isaiah 53, as we've just read, clearly foretelling his death, his suffering, his sacrifice for sin. In Daniel 9, Daniel says that, that Messiah will be cut off, and he gives the timing of his death. This, this illusion, this, this uh, alluding to him being cut off from his people. Zechariah 12 also points to his death, his sacrifice, and even uh, the, the details of crucifixion. We see that his death was foretold in the Psalms, was foretold by the prophets, and, and either explicitly or, or by way of implication or illusion or types, it was foretold. It was something that the Jews should have known. It was something that they should have been looking for. It was something that they should have been expecting. But yet, for most of them, they were expecting uh, Christ uh, coming as he would come in his second coming. They were expecting a victorious Messiah, not a suffering one. And so, Christ himself, also foretold his death. This was a death that was foretold not only by the Psalter, by the prophets, but by Christ himself throughout his ministry. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog him, and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. In his uh, passage on the Good Shepherd, 
showing that he is the good shepherd, showing that he cares for his sheep. In John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. In that passage, considering uh, uh, the the good shepherd, this is picture of him as a shepherd, as a chief shepherd, and his people as a sheep, as a sheep. God's flock. He shows the compassion, the leadership of a shepherd for his sheep. He shows the care. He shows this sacrifice. He also shows that he has complete control over his life and his death, even his resurrection. That no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down. He, he was uh, in complete control of the timing, of the circumstances, of the situation, of the people, when he would lay it down, when he would take it up. He foretells his death and what it would accomplish. And even John 12 Verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was about to die. By that time, the disciples and many people knew that the Jews were against him. That they were hostile towards him. That the religious leaders uh, hated him. But it's interesting because their form of execution was not crucifixion, but it was stoning. They did not lift someone up to execute them, but they cast them down and threw stones upon them. And yet Christ said he he would be lifted up. It would also allude to uh, Old Testament passages concerning the curse of God, that cursed is, is any man who is hanged upon a tree. Deuteronomy. That he would bear the curse of God for us. But because the death of Christ was both foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament, both the guilt of delivering him over to death and the knowledge of his death would haunt the Jews until their national repentance in the future. During the time of the tribulation and just prior to the millennial kingdom. Which is... It's both recorded in Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 12. Not just the nature of his death, but that the Jews would eventually see what they did. It's interesting that even as they tried to deliver him over, as as Pilate was, in in a sense, trying to wiggle out from putting him to death, they said, Let his blood be upon us and our children. What's interesting is some of you have many years ago probably seen the the movie The Passion of the Christ. And in making that movie, uh, the director, uh, producer Mel Gibson put that line from the Bible originally in in that movie. And many Jews, many Jewish organizations confronted him to take it out. He kept it in. He just changed it to Aramaic. But it shows you that it still haunts the Jews. There's still a sense in which there's conviction and guilt. Because his death was foreshadowed and foretold. Even even the reading of uh, the, the... uh, consecutive reading of the scriptures in Jewish synagogues, oftentimes they skip over Isaiah 53, which is known as many preachers have said the torture chamber of the rabbis. This so clearly points to his death. 
His death was not only foreshadowed, it was not only foretold, but it was a death that was also factual. It was a death that was foreshadowed, it was a death that was foretold, and third, it was a death that was factual, which presumes his life was factual as well. But even as I say that, and most of us here, and most Christians, and and even some unbelievers would ask, but why is this important? Most people believe it was a factual death. Well, there are people, most Muslims, some other heretical groups, who believe that he didn't really die. And even those Muslims who would say that, they believe he eventually died, but not that he died on the cross. That he, in some sort, was um, passed out or was knocked out or was unconscious and, and then he was um, escaped, somehow escaped the tomb. <laughs> and it, just to uh, show that, to refute um, his sacrificial death and his resurrection. But even, even the Jews didn't go so far to say that he didn't die. Even as they, they tried to um, cover up his resurrection with their lie to the people and to um, cover it up with uh, 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 bribing the Roman soldiers, they still believe that he died. But there are many people who, Muslims or Gnostic groups or other heretical groups who do not believe that he actually died on the cross. But his death was factual. It was true. It was a fact confirmed by the scriptures. As we we just went over a few in the Old Testament prophecies throughout the whole New Testament. A fact that is uh, irrefutable. A fact that is is just so basic. We don't even question it. It's a fact that's confirmed by history. Uh, Jewish and Roman historians both assert that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who died a real death on a real cross. Even secular historians throughout uh, the last 2,000 years would assert that Jesus of Nazareth was a real figure, a real person, who lived a real life, who died a real death. It's a a fact confirmed by the scriptures, a fact confirmed by history, and a, a fact confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Through the regeneration of believers, we would not be here, the church would not be here if Christ did not die. And if his sacrifice was not sufficient, if it was not real. The Holy Spirit confirms this fact through most of us here being born again. That our sins have been paid for. The Holy Spirit also confirms this fact through the existence and the propagation and the preservation of the church. The church itself would not exist had not Jesus Christ died. However, the factual evidence of the death of Jesus Christ is it's not just important for the defense of our faith, as simple and um, obvious as it may be. But it's also important because it confronts, it convicts, and it compels us in our faith. The simple fact of Jesus dying and the way in which he died. Listen to what John Piper said concerning the reality of Christ's death. He writes this, The gruesome death of the all-glorious, innocent, loving Son of God for my sin is the most radical indictment of my hopeless condition imaginable. The crucifixion of Jesus is the open display of my hellish nature. The death of Jesus Christ is not only what we deserve, but it's what was required by God to save us from our sins. That simple fact that Christ had to not only be crucified, handed over, betrayed, humiliated, mocked, spit upon, suffering physically, 
and spiritually. That simple fact points us to our need of a Savior and the fact that we deserve to die that death because of our sin. So we have seen that the perfect death of Jesus Christ was a death that was foreshadowed. It was a death that was foretold. It was a death that was factual. And fourth, it was a death that was felt. It was a death that was felt. It was felt first and foremost by Christ himself. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death in its fullest sense, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We see his death mostly from the physical side. And certainly there are things that we should contemplate and understand physically concerning crucifixion. That crucifixion was almost a a gruesome art for the Romans. It it was a form of execution which was perfected. It was introduced first by, uh, uh, in the Middle East by Persians, but later on Romans would adopt it. And it wasn't just the nailing to the cross but it was the flogging that would come beforehand. It was a stripping of one's earthly possessions. It was a public humiliation. It was the, the marching them to the cross. This was all a part of it. It wasn't just a, a, a practical steps leading up to death. But it was instituted, engineered to create the most amount of suffering and not just in the in the victim but it was meant as a message as well because Rome they 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 couldn't crucify a Roman citizen this is only for non-citizens it was just in a sense um, to show the world this is what happens when you mess with Rome this is what happens when you uh, go against Rome this is what happens to enemies of the state This is what happens to the worst of criminals. They strip them down. They flog them in such a way that um, they could almost die by the flogging itself, ripping their flesh and breaking their bones. And, and, And not only that, but then making them carry the cross to the place of execution so that they they would not only be worn out, but that they would um, be humiliated, that others would see, that others would see and fear. There was shame associated with crucifixion, shame associated with the cross. And then they would be lifted up and they would be crucified in a public place, usually right by a, a main avenue so that passers-by would see them. And, and normally they would be left upon the cross until their, their bodies rotted away so that the, even the, the birds would come and pick away at them. And maybe even before they actually die, they'd have birds and vultures coming and picking away at their flesh so that passers-by would see and take note and would fear. This is what Christ felt. Everything associated with it. He felt this physically in his humanity. But he also His death was not only felt by him physically, but emotionally. Emotionally. His rejection from his own people as the Messiah, as their king, as their creator. The humiliation he received um, at the hands of sinners, at the hands of his own creation. The reviling, the the cursing, the, the verbal abuse. It had an emotional toll on him, and yet at the same time, he still did not sin. He still did not sin in in self-pity or anger or complaining or 
as the scripture says, reviling for reviling. But also there is this emotional pain of separation from God and from others. Separation from God his Father as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This separation from his disciples, his loved ones, his own mother who is there. Emotional turmoil felt by Christ. Well, it wasn't just the, the physical aspects of the crucifixion or the emotional aspects, but there was something spiritually happening there. Something that we could not fully understand because somehow in three hours on that cross, he paid the debt of sin for all those who would repent and believe upon him. How could that happen in three hours? Because in those three hours, the wrath of Almighty God was being poured out upon him. Spiritually speaking, he was being made a curse. As Deuteronomy would say, he was being cast out. He was bearing our sin. He was experiencing eternal wrath. He was experiencing an unknown amount of eternities in hell. For all his people. He paid it all. Every bit of it. There's a little bit of allusion to this. As we read in this account of his crucifixion in Matthew 27. You can turn there. Matthew 27. There's somewhat of an allusion to what um, he uh, experienced. And I use the term illusion, not illusion, but allusion, alluding to, implying. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45 and 46, it says this. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You get this illusion of what was happening in the darkness. This is not just a stormy day. This is not just black clouds. But this was a spiritual darkness. It was a physical darkness. But it was a darkness that was supernatural. A darkness that was... So dark, it was felt by the bystanders and by Christ himself. And we see a little bit of what was taking place as we read certain Old Testament passages concerning darkness. Or, or even throughout the New Testament, darkness showing not only uh, uh, sin, but God's judgment. And we see this darkness in those day of the Lord passages. In the Old Testament. This is in a sense a, a partial fulfillment of the day of the Lord judgment. It's not a full fulfillment. But there is a sense that as that darkness swept across the land. And, and as some theologians would say it covered the whole earth. That Christ was experiencing the full judgment of God on sinners. Joel the prophet Joel says in Joel 2, For the day of Yahweh is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom. Zephaniah says in Zephaniah 1, Near is the great day of Yahweh, near and coming very quickly. Oh, the sound, the day of Yahweh. In it the mighty man cries out bitterly. A day of fury is that day. A day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom. This is what Christ was experiencing in those three hours of darkness. The holy wrath of God that he would pour out, in another sense, upon the whole world. Yet Christ suffered once for sin. He suffered so that we would not. Listen to what John MacArthur wrote concerning what Christ felt during those three hours on the cross. 
Infinite wrath, moved by infinite righteousness, releases infinite punishment on the infinite Son who can absorb an eternal hell for all who will ever believe in three hours. It is here that He bears in His own body our sins. It is here that He has made sin for us who knew no sin. It is here that He is wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. It is here that He has made a curse for us. These are the three hours of the wrath of God on Him. Christ's death was a death that was felt physically, emotionally, and spiritually by him. But it wasn't just him that felt that death. This was a death that was also felt by the witnesses, by the pilgrims and travelers going in and out of Jerusalem who would see him hanging there on the cross, at those who would um, be coming and going uh, for the Passover celebrations and, and those uh, merchants and traders who would be going in and out of Jerusalem, that they would see this crucifixion, they would not only feel the terror of it and the shame of it and this execution, but they would feel the darkness. And the Jewish leaders and people, they would feel this as well. As in Luke's account, he says at Christ's death in Luke 23, 48, he says, And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, were returning, beating their chests. They came out to see an event. They probably came out for various reasons. Maybe they, they were just curious. Maybe they believed. Maybe they were uh, hostile against Christ. Nonetheless, they came out to see what would happen. And they left, beating their chests, convicted. His death was felt by the witnesses. It was felt by the Roman soldiers and the government officials. Even the centurion who was uh, tasked with uh, carrying out this execution, who no doubt carried out several executions, perhaps hundreds or thousands of executions. This wasn't a, a lackey. Centurion was, as the title uh, alludes to was a leader of a hundred soldiers. He was a professional Roman officer. He had seen crucifixions. He's seen death. He's fought in wars. He knew what death looked like. He knew what it looked like for someone to die, the moments. He's seen this over and over again. And, and yet, after Jesus uh, cried out and, and gave up his spirit, he says, truly, this was the Son of God. This was like no other death. No other crucifixion he had experienced. This was a death which he felt to his core. This was also a death, a death that was felt by Christ's disciples. His death was a death that was felt by Christ himself, by the witnesses, and by his disciples, by those at the scene who still weren't completely sure about his sacrifice, about the crucifixion, who were torn, who were weeping, even to see Jesus hand over the, the duty of the care of his mother to the disciple John. This was felt deeply by his disciples. His death was felt. It was also felt by those who were not there. Those on the road to Emmaus, in Luke chapter 24, as we read that account and, and Jesus um, comes up, he hides his, uh, his uh, identity from them. And he comes up and he, he uh, eavesdrops on their conversation and, and they're, they're talking about this. And they, they said, we thought he was a Messiah. And they, they just feel the effect of everything that took place. The death of Jesus Christ was a death that was felt. But fifth, it was a death that was efficacious. It was a death that was foreshadowed. It was a death that was foretold. It was a death that was factual. It was a death that was felt. And it was also a death that was efficacious. It was effective. 
It was effective to uphold the character of God, to simultaneously display his perfect justice and righteousness, to punish all sin. It is uh, the, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he will bring every act into judgment. As Jesus himself self said, he will judge you for every careless word. God must punish every single sin. He cannot simply forgive us. He cannot simply let it slide or let it pass or say it's all right. That's, you just made a mistake. No, he's holy, holy, holy. He's perfect in all his attributes. And he ordained, he ordained the crucifixion the death of his own son before the foundation of the world to uphold his perfect character, to display his perfect justice. This was a death that was effective to show the holiness of God, to propitiate the wrath of God. And this word propitiation is a word that we don't use as much as was used in the past and partly that's because of the change in our language but also partly because our lack of understanding of the scriptures and theology. Word propitiation means a, a satisfaction for payment rendered. That Christ in his sacrifice, he satisfied the wrath of God for his people. The wrath of God which we deserve. The wrath of God which every sinner deserves but is only taken away through the cross. J.I. Packer, that theologian, he writes this. That he says, Calvary not merely made possible the salvation of those for whom Christ died. It ensured that they would be brought to faith and that their salvation made actual. Jesus Christ, his perfect death was a death that was efficacious. It was effective. It, it, it actually did what it meant to do. He didn't come to make salvation possible. He came to save. He came to save all those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. As Ephesians 1 says, He came to save His people from their sins. He didn't come just to make a, a, a potential sacrifice or a potential salvation. He came to save. To save those who were named before the, before the foundation of the world. His salvation, his death was effective. Effective to uphold the character of God in his love and his mercy and his grace in offering forgiveness to sinners, but also in his justice and his righteousness and his holiness to punish every single sin and in his wisdom as well in his perfect providence, in his sovereignty over everything that would take place that day. This was a death that was efficacious. And it was efficacious to redeem the people of God. And this was shown in the fact that as he died, as he uh, lifted up his spirit, as he gave up his, his spirit, the veil of the temple was torn in two. And it was not just torn in two offering access to God, free access to the Holy of Holies as a symbol, almost a place where only the high priest could enter once a year to offer sacrifices and to intercede for the people. He not only tore this veil, but it was torn from top to bottom, signifying that only God did this. No man did this. This was torn from top to bottom, signifying free Access and communion with God through Jesus Christ. That anybody can now come to God, but they must come through Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Matthew, he writes this. We can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. It is a leading fact in the word of God on which the eyes of our soul ought to be ever fixed Without the shedding of his blood, there is no remission of sin. It is the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. Without it, the gospel is an arch without a keystone, a fair building without a foundation, a solar system without a sun. 
This, after all, is a master truth of Scripture, that Christ died for our sins. He died to save us from our sins. He died to save us from the wrath of God, the wrath that He would bear Himself willingly and fully to save all those for whom that sacrifice was intended. The perfect death of Christ was a death that was foreshadowed and foretold. It was a death that was factual and felt. It was a death that was efficacious, that was effective. And finally, it was a death that was final. It was final. It was a death which was completed. It was completed. It was sufficient. It was a sufficient sacrifice, sufficient to pay for every sin, sufficient to redeem sinful man. It was a death which was completed and a death which could not be repeated, which is obvious to us and almost goes without saying that his death was complete and because it was complete, it could not be repeated. It goes without saying and yet it still needs to be said. It still needs to be said that this was a complete and final sacrifice because today and every Sunday there are Catholic priests and others in uh, false forms of Christianity, liturgical, who claim to call Jesus Christ down from heaven to be re-sacrificed in what is called the sacrifice of the Mass. When they call him, they, they claim to call him down. Which is why they have an altar. We don't have an altar. They have an altar because altars are for sacrifices. That's that's their only purpose. They have altars for sacrifice. So that the Eucharist, which we could go in another uh, rabbit trail about them uh, uh, just distorting that word. But the Eucharist and the cup would literally become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, which is... Heresy, which is wrong, which is not only heretical, but is blaspheming the Son of God. It's blaspheming the Son of God and saying that His sacrifice wasn't sufficient. His death wasn't complete. It wasn't good enough. But we need to add works to it. We need to do more. And not only do we need to do more and add works to His sufficient sacrifice, to His complete sacrifice, but that it needs to be repeated over and over again. They also blaspheme God in in, in claiming to actually have the power to call Jesus Christ down off his throne in heaven to then re-sacrifice him. The king of heaven, the king of the universe, the captain of our salvation, God of gods, Lord of lords, and this man thinks that he can call him down to re-sacrifice him? That's blasphemy. Blasphemy, heresy. His sacrifice was perfect. His death was perfect. This is why scripture reemphasizes Jesus once for all, final and perfect death. Romans chapter 6, 9 and 10, just speaking of, of our union with Christ, Paul says, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He died once and once for all. And he is never to die again. Simple, basic truth that is reemphasized because it must be. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7, once again, chapter 7, verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So once for all sacrifice. It's the only sacrifice that is sufficient to pay for our sins. You can't add works to his sacrifice. If you add anything to his sacrifice, you take away from it. He died. 
He died completely, perfectly. The death of Jesus Christ was a perfect death in every way. It was a death that was foreshadowed and foretold throughout the whole Testament. It was a death that was factual and felt. It was a death that was efficacious and final. So that when he died, when he gave up his life, he said, it is finished. It is finished. It is complete. Tetelestai. That Greek term uh, uh, showing a payment for a debt has been paid completely. Finished. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8.33, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes from us, for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one. No one can separate us from his love because he died. He did it. He sacrificed. His sacrifice was sufficient. It was complete. It was once for all. And because he did it, no one can undo it. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? No one. No one. Because as Paul wrote earlier in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. This perfect death. This perfect death which displays his love towards sinners like us. But how do you know? How do you know you're a recipient of God's love through Jesus Christ? How do you know that you uh, are a benefactor of his sacrifice? How do you know that your sins have been paid for? Well, first, have you repented of your sins? And believed upon the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sins? Do you abhor your sins? Do you hate your sins? And do you trust in Jesus and his sacrifice alone as the only sufficient payment for your sins? Have you, as Romans 10.9 says, confessed with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Is he your Lord and Master? Though you fail and falter in your obedience? Do you long to obey him? Do you love him? Do you seek after him? Do you want to honor him? Do you believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, that God raised him from the dead, that his sacrifice was sufficient? Finally, has God given you a new heart? Has he given you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh as Ezekiel 36.26 says? Do you have a new heart? A new heart that hates the sins you once loved, that, that longs for the righteousness which you did not desire. A, a, a new heart which longs to honor Christ, which seeks to know Christ, which uh, seeks to uh, understand Christ and His Word. A heart that talks to Christ. If this is you, then your sins are paid for. That you are free. That you will not face the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. But if that is not you, then the call is to repent. Turn from your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ. To seek him while he may be found. To call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And turn to the Lord for he will abundantly pardon him. Seek him. Trust Him. For those of us who have been saved, who have been delivered, we remember His sacrifice. We remember that He was given a body so that it could be crushed. That He was given blood so that it could be spilt. That His body was crushed for us. His blood was spilt for us. And we not only honor that sacrifice with our lives, but we remember it. And we remember it by this institution of the Lord's Supper, which he commanded us. So we would remember not only his sacrifice for us, but his return for us. So as I pray, let us prepare our hearts and minds for this, uh, this celebration. The celebration. And this 
celebration is for those, any of those who are true believers, any of those who have truly been born again and are striving for righteousness, are, are not in uh, grievous, unrepentant sin. Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves to be sure that they are in the faith, to examine themselves before they take of the Lord's Supper. We are to confess our sins. This is for only for true believers and only for true believers who are striving for holiness. And yes, we sin every day. We sin more than we can count. But the, the, the question is, is, are you confessing your sin? Are you repenting from your sin? And if that's you, then you are free to come and you are called to come and partake of this supper. So let's pray and prepare our hearts and then we will take of this supper together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of Christ's death. It is clearly laid out for us all throughout the scriptures to understand what truly happened 2,000 years ago on Golgotha, on Calvary. Uh, the perfect man died the perfect death for imperfect sinners like us. He lived a life that we could not live and he died the death that we all deserve to die. By his wounds we are healed. And for those of us who are healed, we remember his sacrifice. And we partake in this supper together. Lord, we thank you for the reminders of your word. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and guide us through this day and throughout this time as we remember the Lord's sacrifice on our behalf. In his name we pray, amen.